Okay, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you could open those up to 1 Kings chapter 18. We are in a series called Standing in the Gap, Elijah, a man like us. And we've been seeing that um, it doesn't really seem like Elijah is a man like us because he's unbelievably faithful. We're going to see pretty soon that he struggles as well. But James insists in his epistle that Elijah really does have a nature like ours. And that's encouraging because the life that Elijah lives, what that means is, the life that Elijah lives is the life that we can live. The faith that he has had is the, life, is, is the faith that we can have. And so we are taking, I hope, great encouragement, maybe a little conviction, maybe a lot, but at least we're encouraged to approach this man of God with a lens that says, this is what God wants from us, faithfulness. We started weeks ago, some of you it's ancient history, four weeks ago or at least we ended or the last time we were in this series and we started with the first half of this confrontation on Mount Carmel. Let me tell you a story this morning that's going to help jump us into the second half where God answers by fire. The Chinese Christian watchman Ni, many of you have heard of him. And this true story occurred before the outbreak of World War II. He led an evangelistic mission. He took a group, a team of missionaries to an island south of the Chinese mainland. And after days of preaching with zero success, no one would believe. No one was responding. One of Watchman's teammates asked the people, why don't you believe in the God of the Bible? They answered, quote, we have a God. One God, Tawang, was his name, is his name, and he has never failed us. And here's the background of that. For 286 years, boy, that's a long time. For almost 300 years, they explain, we've had a festival procession in January. It's a parade to celebrate Tawang. And every year <coughs> in January, we've had this procession, and it's been chosen by divination beforehand, and every year it changes, but it's always in January. And every single year for 286 years, it's been a perfect day with no clouds in the sky. That's why we follow Tawang. And the missionaries asked when that year's day was, and it was January 11th at 8 a.m. Remember that time. And the youngest missionary on the team, his name was Wu. Wu audaciously announced to this entire village leadership, quote, I promise you that it will certainly rain on the 11th. And the people cried out, no more preaching. If there is rain on the 11th, then your God is God. Would you have that faith? Uh, listen, I sat in the pews for a long time. And when a pastor asks that question, it's interesting, but it often didn't penetrate below the thoughts of my mind. Get down to the heart level where your will and your emotions and your thinking really live. The heart that is the control center of your life. Do you really, really 
have that courage and that faith that you would have said that to that village? How many of you believe that God can do things like this? Raise your hand. All right. Most of the hands went up. Let me ask one more question. You be honest. How many of you believe that God could do that through your life? Really believe that? Raise your hand. You see the difference? Faith is really what you answer in the second question, not the first. Would you have had that courage? You know, it's been several weeks since we've been in this series, and if you've ever used Google Maps or MapQuest, or if you have a capacitive phone or a tablet and it's got pinch and zoom where you touch the screen and you bring your fingers in and it condenses the picture or enlarges it. That's the approach we're going to use this morning. We're going to start zoomed out. We're going to get a review of where we've been very, very briefly, just the confrontation of Mount Carmel. Then we're going to zoom in. We're going to get the overview of these 10 verses. A lot happens. I'm going to give you a lot of background. And then we're going to zoom in one more time and find out really how does it apply to us and our hearts. And some of you are annoyed at me because I haven't finished that story. Sorry. Let's move on. Zoomed out. I'll tell you the rest of it at the end of this sermon, if we have time. you got to listen quick. Let's do a review. The last time we looked at Elijah, we found him on top of Mount Carmel. He's in a contest with the prophets of Baal. Remember, it's one prophet of God against 450 prophets of Baal. There are another 400 wicked prophets, the prophets of Ashtoreth, where there's no record that they were on that mountain on that day. Some believe that Jezebel said, we're not going to give Elijah our audience. We're not sending our prophets. Whatever. We know at least there's 450. And they went to a place that at least is believed to be a plateau halfway up Mount Carmel called El Maraca. If you've been over to this land and you've been on that tour, you'll see the statue that you're looking at behind me, a picture, a statue of Elijah with his foot on a prophet of Baal and a sword in his hand. El Maraca means the place of burning. It's believed to have been the place, the site where the altar to Baal was. Even before that, an altar to God. And Elijah had challenged Israel to make a choice. Listen, quit flitting back and forth. Quit limping between serving God wholeheartedly and serving Baal wholeheartedly. Just make a decision. Either serve God or serve Baal and go all in. And he sets up this contest that the the one whose God answers by fire, that's the true God. And all of Israel said, this sounds like a good idea. And so he said to the prophets of Baal, there's 450 of you, there's only one of me, you go first. And so they gave him a bull, had the altar. The prophets of Baal slaughtered the bull, put it on the the altar. And from perhaps 9 o'clock in the morning until noon, they began to worship Baal, asking Baal to respond by fire, consume this offering. But nothing was happening. So Elijah does what he should have done, 
And he begins to mock and he begins to taunt the prophets of Baal in front of thousands of Israelites. He begins reducing Baal down to human levels because every man-made God looks human. Not the God of Christianity. He is far above and ever distinct from us. Yes, he has what are called communicable attributes, but he, is, he has incommunicable tr- attributes, attributes that you and I will never share with God. And so he begins reducing Baal down. Well, maybe Baal's on a journey. Maybe Baal's deep in thought, and then he goes, maybe Baal's using the bathroom in the woods and he can't come to answer your call. And all the while begins to incite the prophets of Baal into a frenzy of worship. And they take their flint knives out. And they begin slashing themselves and piercing their bodies with their spears. And blood is flowing thinking that your blood is what will bring Baal to you. Your blood and your suffering will tell Baal how serious you are. And Baal will answer and Baal will come when your blood flows freely. Nothing happened. And it went on until the offering of the oblation. You should be in your text, verse 29. The offering of the oblation was the offering of sacrifice. It's the evening sacrifice, usually taking place around 3 p.m. So from 9 perhaps till 3 p.m., six hours, these prophets were trying to worship and incite their God to answer, and nothing was happening. And then it was Elijah's turn. And it's here that we begin to zoom in a little bit more. We've given a brief review. Let's look at the overview of this passage. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. See, God had commanded the Israelites in Exodus 20 that when you build an altar, look behind me, you'll see it. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, chiseled stones, dressed stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And the teaching is this, that you can't contribute to your atonement. You can't dress the stones and build an altar out of it. It must be God's stones taken from God's earth because atonement is all of God. Your works and your own righteousness mean nothing when it comes to atonement. So Elijah takes 12 stones and they represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Now you remember there's two kingdoms at this point. There's the northern kingdom and there's the southern kingdom because they had rebelled against each other and they split off. It was no longer the unified Israel. It was Israel of the north and Judah of the south. And 10 of the tribes went with Israel. Two of the tribes went with Judah. And Elijah's saying, no, in God's eyes, your one people in God's eyes you're his people so he took 12 stones representing the unity of Israel and he built the altar it says in the name of the Lord it's got God's name on it it's not a 
altar for God and for Baal, for God and for any other idol. Just like you cannot be double-minded, I cannot be double-minded. You either serve God or you don't. You can't serve two masters. But if you're sitting there like I typically do, and like I did while I was preparing this sermon, I'm going, what is an altar? I mean, how many of you guys have altars in your homes? I mean, don't even answer that if you do, please. We're not accustomed. The best thing we say with altar is this. Come down to the altar. That's not an altar. What is an altar? It's lost in, in, in the ambiguity and the historical nature of this. So I began to, to think to myself, what is an altar? And I began studying it. Well, simply, it's the place of sacrifice where, now listen, where holy God meets sinful humanity. The altar is the intersection where God meets sinner and restores that sinner to peace, restores that sinner to a relationship with him. Let's go a little deeper. And this is where it becomes really interesting. An altar was a table where God was invited to fellowship around a meal, sacrificial animal, where God was invited to fellowship around a meal with the worshiper. That's why an animal had to be sacrificed or a grain offering given. It was an invitation to God. Come to the table and fellowship. By the way, when you have family dinners or you invite people over for fellowship, friends, and you gather around a meal, meal has always, food has always been a staple. It's been a central element of fellowship. But a sinner could not sit at the table with a holy God unless something removes the sin. You see, sin creates an obstacle. And you've got to understand this. This is so central. This is so important to our theology. Sin creates an obstacle. It's a barrier. It's like a locked door. And it's a, an obstacle between holy God and sinful humanity, and it prevents the ability to sit down at the table in fellowship. It prevents the ability of having an unencumbered, free relationship with God. Something has to move, remove that sin. Our holy God will never wink at your sin. And our holy God never gives Tim Ackley a mulligan. I've, I've golfed twice this last summer, both times horribly. I kind of concluded I'm not a good golfer. But I hadn't golfed for, since 1995 was the last time I did a wedding this summer. And they informed me that I'm in the groom's party and we're going to golf. And I said, well, I'm not sure that I want to do that, number one, and I better get one round in for practice. So I did, and I was terrible. I made great use of a mulligan. And a mulligan is when you shank the ball, it doesn't go where you want it to go, you pull another ball out of the bag and put it on the tee and you go again. By the way, one of the people I golfed with was Matt Thornton, and he took way more mulligans than I ever did. I don't even know why that came out. It was inspired by the Spirit of God, I'm sure. 
God will never give you a mulligan at sin. He will never just wink at sin and give you a free pass. And Israel, because of their rebellion, they're underneath the wrath of God. By the way, the evidence of that was three and a half years of drought, neither rain nor dew. That was the judgment, the anger of God because they had apostatized. They had rebelled. They had fallen away from God and begun to worship Baal. There's a breach between Israel and God. There's an obstacle caused by their sin, and something, something has to remove that obstacle. God cannot bless them until his justice is satisfied. And his justice will be satisfied either by, listen, either by falling on Israel or falling on an innocent substitute. You've only got two choices. Either God's wrath will fall on the sinner or it will fall on one who takes the place of the sinner. But God's wrath will fall because God is just, perfectly just. And so they would take animals. This was instituted by God, innocent animals unblemished animals, they would kill these animals, they would place these animals on that altar that would remove the barrier of sin, allowing God to meet at the table with sinner who has been restored now to peace. Because there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. You see, the innocent substitute dies in the place of the sinner, which in this case is the nation, so that they could live. Now he built the altar. Look what else he does, verse 32. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. Now, there, this was a little under two gallons of seed. And if you think in your mind, maybe you're fertilizing your yard and you get those big bags of seed, it doesn't really go very far. You pour out two gallons of seed, and if that's going to fill the altar, or if an altar is as deep and big as two gallons of seeds, that's a very small trench. So some people understand this to mean that the trench was deep and wide enough to place a half bushel that would hold two gallons of seed in it. To me, that makes more sense. It's not really that important, I don't think. And he goes on in verse 33, and he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. So here's what Elijah's doing. First, he took 12 stones out of the ground and he rebuilt the base of the altar and then he digs a trench around it and then he takes the wood and he places it in order. By the way, worship always has to be in order. Chaotic, frenzied, Disorganized worship pleases no one, most of all God. Well, Pastor Tim, I don't like organization. I don't like structure in my life. Well, God does. You need to adjust. God likes order, and it's all through all of his worship. And then he kills the bull. Now, here's something you need to understand. The Jews would not kill the bull or the animal, the lamb, the goat, the bird very early on because the blood instantly begins to congeal. They don't want blood that's congealing. So all the while that Elijah's building this and digging this and placing wood on this, here's a live bull more than likely has to absolutely be held by ropes with servants. 
And this was the Ola offering, what's called the whole burnt offering. In fact, Elijah calls it that. It's one of the five sacrifices that God instituted in order to make a right relationship with him. It's laid down in the law of God that you perform the Ola, the burnt offering, morning and evening smoke shall continually ascend from the altar. And it was to remind, the, listen, we think of this, especially if you're an animal lover, which I certainly am. They are delicious. If you think of this and you think through, this is gory. This is sick. I can't believe how morbid this is. Well, you've got to remember there was a reason that God instituted this. This was God-made, not man-made. And he did this to remind us how radical sin is and how radical the solution must be. The life is in the blood. Blood has to be shed. It means the animal has to die. And Elijah would have brought the living bull before the altar. He placed his hands on its head. The Hebrew really means place your hands heavily on the head. And when you place your hands heavily on the, on the head, by the way, men, if you brought your offering to the, to the temple... These were your hands heavily on the head, not the priest's. If the priest was offering it on behalf of the nation, his hands were. But your hands would have been if this is on behalf of your sins and your families. And so you put your hands on the head of the animal. And while you're praying, it symbolizes that God is taking your sins and placing them on the animal's account. And the animal will die. And the innocence of the animal is being placed on your account. And you will live. All of this, all of this points forward to the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Then Elijah would have taken a knife while men were holding the bull tight with ropes and he would have either pierced its neck and in the artery or slit the throat and a bull would be placed because it was sacrilegious to let that blood fall to the ground. You take that blood that's coming out of that bull and you capture it in a bowl. And then you walk up to that altar and Elijah would have taken it to that altar and splashed it, sprinkled it against the side of the altar. This is the table. This is the place where God's about to meet with a sinful nation. And then he skins the bowl, he quarters it, joints it, washes all of the innards and places all the pieces on the altar. Why? It's why it's called a whole burnt offering. And all of this, again, is pointing forward to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now listen, who is going to be put on the altar of the cross. Have you ever seen the cross as an altar? That's what it was, according to Hebrews. He was placed on the altar of the cross. He was killed for our sins, making peace with his father for all who will believe in him. We Christians can now meet with God in fellowship around the table because of the death, the burial, the resurrection of his son, Jesus. And you can't chisel your stones to add into it. You can't work hard enough. You can't be a good enough person to dress your stones for an altar. It must be all of God because atonement is all of God's work. And it was finished from the cross. 
In verse 33, he goes on, he fills four jars with water, and he pours it on the burnt offering and on the wood, and he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time, they did it a third time, and the water ran around the altar and filled that trench also with water. So we're at perhaps El Maraca, a plateau for thousands of Israelites, halfway up Mount Carmel, and there they found a spring. But I wonder if the spring really could have had water in it after three and a half years of neither rain nor dew. So likely their second water source would have been at the base of Mount Carmel called the Brook Kishon. The Kishon River today is about 65 feet wide in the spring rains. It's 23 miles long. It empties into the Mediterranean Sea. When it's not in flood stage from the spring rains. It's much, much smaller. In fact, right now, there's a reclamation project on this river. It was so polluted, not even bacteria could live in it. They're trying to clean it up, and they're showing great success. This is their second water source. And again, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to ask, three and a half years of no rain and no dew, we know what happens to our rivers. Could there really have been water in that river? Likely, No which presented the third and final water source right at the bottom of Mount Carmel called the Mediterranean Sea. And if that was the water source of salt water, now we get to the missing element that was commanded to be in the sacrifice, salt. Look at what the Word of God says behind me. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. Well, you might be saying, well, this was not a grain offering. Well, read on. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Friends, the altar was a table of fellowship where God and humanity could meet in peace. And like our own tables, what was always to be on that table was salt. Because salt symbolizes, listen, get this, write it down, put it in your mind. Salt symbolizes God's eternal covenantal promises to never leave or forsake his people. Salt was always to be there because, listen, salt is incorruptible. You can't destroy salt. Yes, it can lose its flavor, but it will survive. Salt purifies. In fact, in the ancient times, salt was more valuable than gold. It was given to the Roman soldiers in place of wages. The word salary that we're all familiar with came from the root word salt. A person is worth his salt means the salary fits his abilities. It prevents decay. It sterilizes wounds. It heals Soars, it guards against the dangers of heat. By the way, we almost had a girl die years ago on a Mexico mission trip. The salts were so depleted in her body, went into seizures. God was so faithful and merciful to us. Salt is important in that dry and arid climate. Salt was a symbol of friendship and faithfulness when shared. The presence of salt, friends, is Elijah screaming out, shouting out, God is covenantally faithful to you, Israel. And how many barrels of water did they pour over? Not four. They did it three times, 12. And all of a sudden, we're back to the symbol that God is faithful to all of Israel. He loves all of Israel. 
when he upholds his covenant. But let's zoom in again for the rest of this sermon and let's see what all of this means to us today, to Christians today. Friends, are we like Elijah? Which back in verse 30, if you want to look, said to the people, come near to me. Don't gloss over that. Don't flip over that too quickly. Because what confidence this demonstrates, what you're saying to people, what Elijah was saying to Israel, what we are saying when we invite people, come near to me, is that I know the truth. I know the way. I know Jesus Christ. I know the answers to your life. Come to me, and I'm going to hold it out. I'm going to hold him out, and you can taste and see that God is good. Do you have that confidence? When's the last time you've invited somebody to come listen to you as you've held out the gospel? That takes guts. That takes guts. It takes courage. It's what we should have. And when we invite people near to us to hear and to see the gospel, the love, and the redemption of Jesus Christ, listen, we're going to find, we're going to find that they have built their lives on broken altars. And we're going to need to repair them. These broken altars, these worthless religious systems, some of the most heart-wrenching moments I've ever had in pastoring is I've sat with people who have worshipped at the altar of financial security and their stocks dropped, or they've worshipped at the altar of love in another human being and the person left them, and they've worshipped at the altar of career, of a big house. I mean, over and over, our, our altars are endless, and when you worship at them, sooner or later, they will fail you, and when they fail you, your life is filled with despair. It's some of the worst times of pastoring, and some of the best. It's heart-wrenching. So many people believe they can find their peace and their atonement and their fulfillment at the broken altar of good works. Listen, their lives are shipwrecked after the altar of their career comes out empty. You don't have a life at a broken altar. And do we, like Elijah, do we know how to rebuild them? Do we know God? Do we know his word? Elijah knew his word. He knew you don't dress stones he knows you put salt on the sacrifice. It's God's covenant. You keep the bull alive so the blood doesn't congeal and you throw the blood against the altar because it's the blood of Christ. We have no hope beyond that. Friends, listen, is there somebody in your life, listen, is there somebody in your life that you know is living at a broken altar? What, whose face just popped into your mind? You've got to go to them, not your pastor. You've got to go to them. You're a priest. It's the priesthood of all believers, Hebrews says. You go bring them to God and bring God to them. You bring them and invite them near and start to repair their altar. And just in case you're thinking, well, you know, Tim, that's easy for you to do. You're a pastor. You get paid to do this. It's not easy. A few weeks ago, I had a pastor at a local church, well-known church, very, very historical church. 
on a Monday morning, come up to my office. And he says, Tim, I've sensed God telling me I need to take risks. And this is a risk that I need to take. I want to ask you if you would be part, along with me, and being in a community of interfaith clergy. Interfaith clergy means this, that rabbis, priests, pastors, imams, all of us get together for the same cause. As graciously as I knew how to do it, I said, no. Why would I? If you're not going to preach Christ as the only way to the Father, and if you're not going to hold out His word as the hope for all nations, why would I want to be part of that? And why would you want to be part of that? You're in an evangelical church. It's not easy to invite people to you and to begin repairing their altar. It takes courage. It takes confidence. It's the example of Elijah. It's the path that we all must follow. And you do it while you have an exemplary prayer life. Look at Elijah's verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have not turned, that you, and that you have turned their back, their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell. This is what James says of Elijah. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, I bet most of us have read that before. But did you catch that? It's the righteous person whose prayer is powerfully effective. And for some of us, our theology says, well, that means if you're a Christian. And that's not what that means. Listen, if you think, brother and sister, that just because you're a child of God, that regardless of how faithful and obedient you are to him, your prayers are going to be filled with power, you are seriously mistaken. If I had cherished sin in my heart, David says, the Lord would not have listened. David was a child of God. Jesus says to his disciples, his followers, his believers, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, there's an if, there's a condition, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It goes on in the epistle of John. Whatever we ask, whatever we pray for, whatever we ask, we receive from him because there's your condition. We keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Haven't you ever wondered why your prayers are so ineffective? Haven't you prayed for somebody's healing? And haven't you prayed for success at work that you could bring God's glory to bear? Haven't you prayed over and over for something and not seen God work? Sometimes it's because the will of God says, no, I'm not going to answer the prayer that way. And other times it's because we're simply not walking with God in faithfulness. It's the prayer of a righteous man that is powerful and effective. And it's found in those who walk closely with God in faithful obedience. See, Elijah served God in a time of great 
great darkness, yet he was filled with courage. Look at you go back through this text. Every time he speaks, all eight times in this passage, he's issuing commands. It's one prophet against 450. He's vastly outnumbered. He's one man against a nation, yet he knows what Isaiah would later write, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. That's courage. That's confidence. In verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Listen, when God moves, he is literally unopposable. You pray for revival. You pray for your friend to come to know Christ. You pray for help for a people group that is struggling. Pray and pray and pray, invite people near, repair their altars, have confidence, because when God moves, literally nothing can oppose him. And finally, we've got to be willing to battle. We can't sit on the sidelines where it's safe. Elijah said to them, Verse 39, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, and here we cringe. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. A lot of us, our mouths are open wide going, what? He killed 450 men and women? I had a young person last night come up to me and says, so what's the difference between that and murder? What a great question. God's serious about removing that which threatens his people. Listen, if you had a diagnosis of cancer, and the doctor sits down with you and tells you and shows you the MRI, says, here's what's going on. I think this is an aggressive form, and I'm giving you five or six years to live with treatment. But we've got two kinds of treatment we could do. One of them is we could go in there and we can surgically remove it. We're going to have to cut deep. And likely you're not going to be the same again. And then we'll start radiation and chemotherapy. But there's another treatment option you have. And the other one is you can try to rest and reduce the stress in your life and try to, try to take more vitamins which one are you going to take? You see, a radical problem of sin that is cancerous among the leadership of God's people, it's got to be rooted out. And it's got to be rooted out in a radical way. It is God that commands false prophets to be stoned. Now, I feel weirdly in this day and age, I've got to tell you, we have a different sword that we use now. I mean, I don't want anybody coming out of here going and doing harm to somebody that's speaking lies. You almost have to say that in today's age. But we've got a different sword, and the sword that we have now is this one. And here's how you use this sword, according to Paul, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. That was the Old Testament. This is the new, this is the church age. But they've got divine power, this sword, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 
That's how you wage war. You know your God and you know his word and you bring it to bear when you're inviting people to you and you're repairing the altars. And some of you have said to me, well, Tim, I don't know how to answer a Jehovah's Witness. So I just don't invite him in. I don't answer the door. Well, I don't know what to say when my coworker asks me that question, why God allows bad things to happen to good people. So I just avoid the conversation. And you're not repairing the altar. You're not waging war. You're not getting into the battle. Know your God. Know his word and fight. You've got a great power on your side. Now you probably have not listened to anything I've told you because you just want the rest of the story from Watchman Nee. So I'm going to start over again. No, I'm just kidding. It was the youngest member of that missionary team who made that audacious promise that it would rain on January 11th. And he goes back to the rest of the team and Watchman Nee is among them and he tells them what he said. And they did not doubt, listen, they didn't doubt that Tao Wang was capable of providing fair weather, either through demonic influence or through the fishermen's uncanny ability to predict the weather. They were incredibly good at it. So they began to pray, not desperately, they began to pray confidently, resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his power over all things. So let me quote the rest of the story. As Nee writes, I was awakened on January 11th by the direct rays of the sun. Not a good beginning. It was coming through the single window of our attic, and I said, this isn't rain. It was already past 7 a.m., and remember, this starts the procession, the parade to worship Tawang starts at 8. I got up, he says. I knelt down and prayed, Lord, please send rain. And I walked downstairs before God in silence. And we sat down to breakfast, all eight of us, our whole team, including our whole host. And all of us were very quiet. There wasn't a cloud in the sky, but we knew God was committed. And as we bowed to say grace before the food, I said, I think the time is up. Rain must come now. We can bring it to the Lord's remembrance. And even before they finished praying and reminding God of what they had told the villagers, before they even said amen to their prayer to God, they could hear a few drops of rain hit the tiles outside of that home. And as they ate their rice for breakfast, the drops became a steady shower. And as they began to have seconds, I don't think I could eat by this point. As they began to have seconds, they asked God for a heavier downpour, by, and the rain came down in buckets. By the time they finished breakfast, the streets were flooded, and the bottom three steps of the house were covered with water. They walked to the doorway, and they heard one of the young villagers shouting, There is God. There is no more Tawang. He is kept in by the rain. But listen, Ta Wang was a portable idol. So the older men 
loyal to him, carried him out on a litter to begin the festival procession. And as soon as they brought their God outside, the downpour increased. The men bearing the litter for the idol slipped and they fell. And Ta Wang fell off of his litter, breaking his jaw and snapping off of his left arm. But he could be repaired. So they went back inside and they patched him together and they brought him back out again. And the rain came down so hard that they could not see. The mud grew so thick they could not walk. They ended that processional. Now you answer me honestly two questions again. How many of you believe that that happened? Raise your hand. How many, how many of you really believe that God could do that through your life? Friends, you've got to believe. You've got to believe. Elijah was a man like us with a nature like ours. God can work miraculously. Invite people to your life. Hold out the gospel. Repair their altars. Pray fiercely. And have the courage and the confidence to wage war against darkness. Stand in the gap and defend the glory of your God. Right where you are, right in your homes, your jobs, your schools, even maybe in our own church. Lord, thank you for Elijah. Lord, thank you for encouraging us. God, I pray that our faith would grow, that we would be the faithful people of God. And believe that our God does work in ways that are way beyond our understanding. Ways to bring himself glory. God, you bring yourself glory. May we defend that. And invite people to hear the gospel. To work to repair their altars because we're ministers of reconciliation between sinful person and God. And may we pray and have confidence to trust you and wage battle, to wage war, standing in the gap right where we are. Lord, you are a mighty, mighty God. We love you and we thank you. And in your name we pray, amen.